Welcome to the teaching ministry of pastors Carl and Cheryl Thomas. Our favorite verse is Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Consumed by that revelation, we are committed to recognizing, resourcing, and releasing high-impact ministries resulting in global glory, transforming lives to impact their world. We have a teaching that will impact you today. Now, let's get right into that word. Hallelujah. Well, it's just great to be here. Boy, this church has grown. Isn't that exciting? Come on. That's good. That's what we're here about. We're here about. We want to see people come into the kingdom of God, and you're in a good place here. This is a place of blessing. This is a place where God's spirit is present. Hallelujah. You can't be in a better place than that. Where God, you know, why do I come to church? Because Jesus comes. Uh, And you know why else I come to church? Because you're here, and you are the body of Christ. And uh, that has to sink into our heads a little bit, I think. Wow. How many people here have a dog? My old Pastor Carl has a dog. What's your dog's name? Bosco or Roscoe or Ro- what? Uh, Beauregard. Beauregard. Beauregard Wellington the Third. <laughs> that figures. <laughs> How many people who have a dog have given them a human name? Now, why is that? They, they just look so human, don't they? And they become part of your family. Do you love your dog? Do you love your dog? I do, unfortunately. Yes. Do you, anybody else? You all love your dog? How much do you love your dog? Lots. Enough to what? <laughs> You're an outlier. <laughs> do you love your dog enough to become a dog? God so loved the world that he sent his son to become a man. That's as extreme as what I just challenged you with. He didn't become a man for a short period of 33 years. He's a man forever. That is commitment to humanity. That is a commitment to us. Hallelujah. Jesus crashed the devil's party. Hallelujah. And he's still doing that. He can crash the devil's party in each of us. Hallelujah. He crashed the devil's party. He became a man. What a strange man. What an unusual man. A man like nobody had ever seen before. A man like the devil had never seen before. What a strange man. Even the winds and the seas obey his voice. What a strange man. He doesn't speak like the scribes. He speaks like one with authority. What a strange man. What an unusual man. Who is this man? People were surprised by him. They couldn't figure him out. Not only were people surprised by him, but the devil and his whole kingdom were surprised by him. When he came upon those who were demon-possessed, the demons cried out, We know who you are. What are you doing in our domain? What are you doing in our domain? It's It's not our time. What are you doing in our domain? They recognized who he was to some degree, but were surprised that he came in a human form and he came in this way. I think even the devil was not expecting this. And I think he was maybe a little bit doubtful. Better tempt this guy. If, if you are the son of man, do this, do that. Jesus didn't have to prove himself to the devil. He wouldn't bow to that. If, if, it's only my theory, but I think maybe the devil's a little bit confused about Jesus right to the day he died. And I think when he saw that the, that the, that he was going to be crucified, I think he was applauding and thinking, well, it is just a man. He is just a man, this strange man. But I think when he died and gave his eternal soul into the hands of his father, I think 
hell had the surprise of eternity. <laughs> he gate crashed. Hallelujah. The gates of hell will not prevail. Hallelujah. He gate crashed. <laughs> he tore aside its bars. He broke down its doors. And the king of glory entered in. If they knew they would kill the king of glory, they would never have crucified him. Because he was a surprise answer to our dilemma. And he entered in and he set captives free because light entered darkness and it still enters. Hallelujah. Wonderful. I think the devil said, oh no, what have I done? Yeah. And no, it gets worse. Because uh, the scripture says that he became just like a seed. He's like a seed that was planted. And a seed has to die before. And when a seed dies and it's planted, it brings forth what? It brings forth fruit. It brings forth seed after its kind. After its own kind. And now, not just uh, even a hundredfold, but uh, a billionfold. <laughs> Hallelujah. The life of Christ has been multiplied and has been disseminated. It has been put into the hearts and, uh, as a treasure into an earthen vessel. And now you contain and receive, you have received the life of Christ. That could only happen through what Jesus did on the cross. He has come to invade your life. Hallelujah. But he actually stands at the door and knocks. He's not going to gate crash your life. You have to invite him in. But when you invite him in, he's going to turn the party upside down. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's going to be a good party. Trust me. It'll be good. He'll turn your morning into dancing. Hallelujah. Sometimes your party is more like a funeral. Hallelujah. But he comes, he is resurrected, and he has caused us to be raised with him. Something remarkable happens, and he is a, he, he is a strange man, and now you're all strange people. <laughs> because it's seed after his kind. Right. Now you're all strange. Or Peter says you're peculiar people, which oh, basically right. means you're all strange. Like, the, the, we can't make, actually, the devil kind of knows what to expect now because he saw it in Jesus. He was the prototype of many others who were going to come after him. Sons, uh, the Son of God became one who created sons of God to bring many sons to glory to where he is. So, actually, the devil has a little bit of a preview of what he can expect, but he's got a trick up his sleeve. He says, I'm going to keep them in the dark. We're going to tell them, we're going to keep them ignorant of who they really are. Because if they find out who they really are and they begin to operate in that zone that Jesus operated in, we got big trouble. Big trouble. Somebody say big trouble. big trouble. Hallelujah. You're big trouble. Hallelujah. You're armed and dangerous. Praise the Lord. So when Jesus came in this way, he turned everything upside down. He changed the Old Testament to the New Testament. The old deal to the new deal. In the Old Testament, God is not a man, the scripture says. In the New Testament, God is a man. Amen. It makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. He's a new form of man. He's a prototype. He's the image. We are now, uh, he is the image uh, that uh, those who believe in him can be reborn into and can be shaped into. We can be shaped into the image of Christ. He is saving our souls he is modifying who we are deep inside. He's conforming us by the power of his Holy Spirit and shaping us into the nature of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And he's, he, he's very confident that he can do it. God is not worried about it. Hallelujah. But what this means is that we've entered into, a, a, we, call it, we say we're strange people, but it's because we're in, a, we're in a relationship with God, which is very hard for us as humans to co totally relate to, because we don't totally understand it. So God makes little images in scriptures. He tells us that, well, it's like a marriage. You're like a body. You're like, a, there's like uh, God's presence is like a river. It's a mountain that we climb. He's trying to relate it all into human terms that we can understand. But you know, there's no human term or analogy that can fully depict what we are in Jesus Christ and who we are in relationship with him. We're in a place with God that the angels could not go. The angels cannot go there. We're in a place with God that is unique, that only the Son of God knows. 
He said that they may be one, Father, even as we are one. I and you, you and me, and they in us. Hallelujah. And us in them. Hallelujah. We can't totally understand that. And so don't be too surprised, but the Bible calls it a mystery, which means there's more to it than meets the eye. And what I want to introduce, what I, what I want you to grasp hold of today, and, and I'm trying to put it in terms that kind of rock your boat, because it's rock mine, hallelujah. And we come to see that who we are in Jesus Christ is going to turn the world upside down. Right. The early church turned the world upside down by the power of the Holy Spirit's presence. And God's presence is to be with us today like never before, even better than it was in the, old, in the uh, early church. Even better, even better, even better. Because the glory of the latter house is to be greater than the glory of the former. Hallelujah. Whoa. Wow. So it's a mystery of that new relationship between man and God. And it's very personal. It's between you and God. It's between mankind and God. We can't fully explain it, but we can live in that mystery. And that's part of the wonder of coming to church. Because now, you know, it's a, uh, our experience in God is a corporate experience as well as a personal one. So we, when, when he said, he said, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. Now, that doesn't mean he's not there when you're blown by yourself up in the woods. Uh, but he's here when we're gathered in a different way and in, a, in, a, in a more dimensions than when we are alone with God. So it's one thing to be alone with God, but it's another thing to have a corporate experience. We actually feed Christ off each other. That's part of the mystery. Church is supposed to be a mystery. You're supposed to come here and get more than you think. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I know I did. (laughs) I didn't think it would happen like this. Uh, I'm a very conservative guy, by the way. I'm shy and all that. But boy, the Lord zapped me bad. And it kind of rocked my boat. So are you ready to get rocked? Yeah. Okay, well, this wasn't actually my, this wasn't the party I was supposed to talk about. (laughs) I'm going to talk about the party in Cana of Galilee, the wedding. And, uh, you know, Jesus was invited there. So it comes uh, from John chapter 2, and I'll just read a couple of verses there. John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And on the third day, somebody say the third day. A lot of good things happen on the third day, by the way. Resurrection life happens on the third. I'm not sure when they started counting the days in this particular passage, but it was on the third day, probably after he got baptized. Would you think that's probably right? I don't know. He doesn't know, so I don't know. (laughs) On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited. Say invited. Thank you. uh, To the wedding. And when they ran out of wine... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I'm not sure why the mother of Jesus had to convey that. I'm not sure. She she may have been the caterer. I'm not sure. But uh, I don't know why she got involved in all of that. Jesus wasn't quite sure why she got involved either. What's that got to do with us? (laughs) We're here as guests. It's not my wedding. I'm not supposed to provide the wine. Uh, So... Here he is at the wedding. He's been invited, he and his disciples. So far, nothing much has has happened except the baptism and some of the disciples started following him. And uh, this whole passage actually uh, is described as a sign, the first of the signs. Everybody know what a sign is for, right? A sign conveys information and a sign points to something. So this is a sign. So this is a special, it's not just a story, it's a sign. It's something that is given as a sign, as a piece of information, and as a direction for, for it's for us because it's been written in the Word. So, uh, it's interesting to me that uh, Jesus actually ever only went, or is, will ever only go to two weddings. This one and the marriage of the Lamb, which is his own wedding. So he's only ever going to two weddings, and this was kind of like the Alpha wedding, and the other one will be the Omega wedding. Uh, The last wedding will be a royal wedding. It's a great wedding, and this actually is pointing to a little bit, and a bit of a foreshadowing of the royal wedding that's going to take place when he joins himself formally 
to the bride, to the corporate body, to you and me personally, but also to the corporate body. It's a wedding feast. It's a feast. It's a celebratory time. It's a time when he's extreme. All of heaven would be really happy. They're all looking forward to this. They've sent out their RSVPs already. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a black tie affair because it's a royal wedding. You don't come there just dressed any which way. You come dressed in special garments. Uh, and, uh, and there's no distinction because there are people of every social and every educational and every financial and every different level of humanity, every tribe and tongue and nation and, and culture. They're all coming there. And so there's been one wedding garment that kind of fits the culture of heaven. And uh, white is in vogue. So we will all be dressed in white. And uh, we're going to come with the special garments that the king has provided for us. These, are the, these represent the righteous deeds of the saints. Wonderful time. So this is actually pointing towards that wedding, which is a joyous time. How many people know that Jesus likes to have fun? He likes joy. He's big on joy. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, is joy. Fruit of Spirit means it is the outcome of the Spirit dwelling in you. So if you're reading Galatians 5 and all those different things that are there, uh, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not like something we pick. It's something that's growing inside you. It's the outcome of the Holy Spirit living in you. There's a good advantage for the Holy Spirit to live within you. You get a, a multi-fruit orchard going in there, and, uh, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, and you can enjoy that. It's all those things, you read them. There. How many people like fruit? I love fruit. We tell all our grandchildren, you know, you got to eat your, you got to eat your hot dogs first before you get that fruit. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like a treat, isn't it, to get fruit? Anyway, let's turn our attention to that first uh, wedding that Jesus attended in Cana. It was in his hometown, and uh, and so as the third verse says, uh, there was a vintner's crisis right there. It turns out that the crowd was a lot thirstier than the supply of wine. And so they ran out of human wine. The natural wine had run out. And Mary, of course, decided she would try and uh, save the day. Uh, and uh, she turned to Jesus and uh, wanted, wanted him to do something. I'm not sure what she expected him to do. And like he said, what's this got to do with us? Uh, I'm not, I don't need to provide, it's not my wedding. I will provide wine in my wedding. Because he did tell his disciples at the Passover, I'm going to enjoy wine with you in the kingdom. So he's going to provide wine in the wedding. And he provides a different kind of wine for us now too. But uh, at that point in time, uh, the wine had run out. And so now uh, she, he was requested to do something about it. And, uh, and, and he did. As you all know the story, he turned water into wine. I mean, say wine. It's a, as opposed to Kool-Aid, you know, he didn't do that. He turned it into wine, and there's a good reason why he did that. I, I was thinking, I mean, I, I sometimes think bizarre thoughts. I don't know, I was on holiday too, or a little bit of a break. And so when I was thinking about this, I thought, uh, why would he only have gone to two weddings? I mean, if I were a wedding planner in Cana of Galilee and some guy came along and turned barrels of water into 180 gallons of wine, he'd be at my next wedding. <laughs> he was never invited to another wedding. I don't get it. And sometimes, actually, I'm surprised why when you get full of the zeal of the Lord, have you ever had experiences you get full of the zeal? Oh, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to go tell my friend. And you go tell your friend, your friend says, like, whoa, get away from me. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get that. But it's a good thing when we have tasted and seen that the Lord of good. Yeah. So this was his first miracle, and the scripture says uh, that uh, it was uh, his, his disciples believed in him after that. So it really was more for his disciples' sake. Uh, and, but it actually pictures... It's a picture of what the ministry of Jesus is like. Because you know what? And today too, people have a total misunderstanding of what it's like to be a real believer. They think it's a real miserable life. And it is a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. For God did not send his son into the world in order to judge, to reject, to condemn, to pass sentence on the world 
but that the world might find salvation and be made safe and sound through him. That's good news. That is good news. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came preaching the gospel, which means good news. And he chose the wedding as a sign, as a way of portraying what his ministry would like, what the New Testament would be like, as opposed to the Old Testament. Most believers, the devil is tricked into living under Old Testament rules. But we're under a new covenant in the New Testament of Jesus Christ, and it makes all the difference in the world. And we're going to portray how that difference is. It's a wonderful thing. Jesus went about doing good. That's a synopsis of his three and a half years of ministry. He went about doing good. He's still going about doing good. He's using us to go about and do good. So the sign, it's a sign that points towards union. A wedding is a union. It's a wedding is a union which brings two people together in the closest possible human relationship that, that, that God has designed so that we come together and we become, the Bible says, like one flesh where we actually synchronize with each other. I was watching Carl and Cheryl here synchronizing their, uh, as they were giving off their announcements. And that comes as a result of a loving relationship. Did you know that? Amen. This is psychology. I read it in psychology today and they wouldn't lie. Uh, where you, where you think the same thoughts is that your brain somehow gets connected. I don't know how that happens, but they've shown that it does. So my brain is connected with my wife. It's, a wonder, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. I'm always amazed at that. I cannot think a thought, but she already knows what I'm thinking. It's an amazing and scary sometimes. She also has a prophetic edge, which makes it even worse. <laughs> But we, can, we, we always have the same idea of what we want for dinner. We go to a restaurant, we look at the menu, we always choose the same thing. I don't know why. Even if it's like something I wouldn't think she'd like, uh, somehow we're thinking the same way and we always order the same thing. Why don't we order different things? I could have some of yours, you can have some of mine. No, I always have the same thing. I don't know why. It's about union. A wedding is about union. A wedding is about union. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. And we think about that, we think, oh, we have the attitude of Jesus, we have the... No, you're actually physically or physiologically or, or spiritually connected to the way of Jesus, to the way of thinking. And when you're in a Holy Spirit church, which this is, when you're in a Holy Spirit church, bizarre things happen. You begin to think along the same lines. One has this, one has that, but everything adds up together. The people that sing the songs sing songs that relate to the message that they haven't conferred with each other. But it all links in a wonderful way because it's all about union. And it makes all the difference when we're in union with Jesus. So the New Testament is about the presence of God. So the takeaway is this. That what I want you to go home with is the whole reason for our relationship with Jesus is not to escape hell. It is to be in relationship with God. Amen. The whole reason for us coming to church is to experience relationship with God because we experience God through one another and through God directly. It's part of the mystery of the body of Christ. So everything changes in the New Testament. So I see three things that we can look at in the scripture that, that change, that are different, a different paradigm. There's a difference between Old Testament holiness and New Testament holiness. Isn't that interesting? He took six pots of water. You know what those pots were for? They were for ritual cleansing. They contained between 20 and 30 gallons of water. That, the, the, um, that the, the proper way of doing things when you're a guest in someone's house is you wash their feet and their hands, and they had this water there. And it was not just a, a polite thing or a cultural thing. It was a spiritual thing. They did it to demonstrate that they were being sanctified and set apart. So those were ritual cleansing. And it was by water where they washed, of course, the outside. The water doesn't go inside, but they washed it on the outside. And held between 20 and 30 gallons each. So you figure when Jesus turned 20 to 30 gallons times six uh, into wine, I calculated that would be about 1,000 bottles. Wow. That's a lot of wine. <laughs> That's a lot of Carlo Rossi, but I don't think it was not the cheap stuff. <laughs> Hallelujah. 
I, I mean, my, my imagination goes a little, you know, when I read these things here, and I like to think things through like that a little bit. And so, you know, I, I kind of imagine the servants taking, he tells the servants, go give that now to them, to the uh, sommelier. Go give it to the like, maitre d'. And so they take a glass, of, they dip the water and bring the glass over to the maitre d', and the maitre d' takes it. He's looking at it, and he's like, hmm, looking at the legs on the wine, smelling it, taking a little sip. Wow, where did you get this? This is not like any wine I've ever tasted. This is amazing wine. What vintage is this? I can think of the servants going through their head. Do I tell them it's three o'clock? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we don't know what vintage this is. Wow, this is the best wine ever. You saved the best wine. He went to the, to the guy who was running the party and said, boy, you saved the best wine to last. <laughs> you know, water cleans the inside, but wine gets right into the blood. There's a reason why Jesus chose wine as a, as a symbol in this particular miracle. Because wine gets in the blood. Blood cleanses you inside. Water cleanses you outside. But blood cleanses you inside. And the wine is a picture. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But it's a, it's a symbol of the life of Christ. It's a symbol of His blood. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. We're not cleansed on the outside. We don't get washed whiter than snow on the outside. We get washed whiter than snow on the inside. It's the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of the Holy Spirit. It's the a, it's a life of Christ. The life is in the blood. The life is in the Spirit of God. And it enters into your bloodstream. And similar to what wine would get into your bloodstream, the alcohol and the wine, and the wine gets into your blood. And, and it, it affects you. Come on, don't pretend you don't know that. <laughs> and there's a reason why Jesus chose wine. What happens when wine gets inside you? You know, when, they, when the Holy Spirit came on the upper room in the Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell on all the people, and they got wild. I mean, you think this place is wild. This is nothing. The Holy Spirit fell there. They, they, went, they went bizarre. They went holy rockers. And they began speaking in other tongues. The, the Greek word there is glossolalia, which means ecstatic utterances. They got wild, got full of joy. So when, when the wine of the Spirit gets into our, our, us, there's a few things that happen. First of all, we are sanctified by the blood. We are sanctified by the wine of the Spirit coming in. That means... I mean, sanctified means we're set apart for a holy purpose. So the outward cleansing is to set apart, is to prepare you for a holy purpose, in this case, a wedding. So you're prepared for a holy purpose. When the blood of Jesus Christ comes into you, you are sanctified by the blood of Jesus. It means you are set apart for a holy purpose. You are set apart. God has a purpose for your life. And it's, the purpose for your life is, is an eternal purpose. It goes on beyond here, but it begins right here. How many people know when you get born again, that's when your life starts? When you're born, that's when your life starts. When you're born again, that's when your eternal life starts. It doesn't wait until you're dead. It starts right now. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Hallelujah. And so you're set apart now, and what you do now affects what you'll be in eternity. It's all connected. And so that's why it's so important that we have the Holy Spirit's presence in our life because it sets us apart. It puts us aside. It ministers to us, and it makes us ready. That's the difference between Old Testament where you had to make yourself ready by doing certain ritual things. And in in here, it's God who makes you ready. Hallelujah. Secondly, wine makes your heart rejoice. According to the Bible. I wouldn't know. <laughs> yes, I do know. But not, not, crazy, not crazy happy, but a little bit happy. Uh, but the wine of the Holy Spirit makes your heart rejoice. 
in the Old Testament, the king's cupbearer, Nehemiah, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer, and, and what you read there is that he was not supposed to be unhappy. If he came to the king with a cup of wine and he looked unhappy, because he's supposed to taste the wine first, and if he looked unhappy, what does that say about the wine? <laughs> Get that man out of here. Maybe it's full of toxins and poison. You look like you just drank poison. Get out. I'm not drinking that. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It's supposed to make you happy. You're the people of God are supposed to be happy people. Hallelujah. I don't know why I keep saying hallelujah. It must be this place. I never say that at home. <laughs> okay, but hallelujah then. <laughs> it makes you, I'm feeling happy right now. <laughs> it makes your heart rejoice. And you know, that is the best advertisement for Christianity that you can possibly have. And it's not the general advertising that's out there right now. It's all about what we're against. Okay, well, here's what I'm for. I'm for the Holy Spirit coming into your life and making you jolly happy. Yeah. Hallelujah. So there's a reason he chose wine. That's, that's number two reason. The third reason is it breaks down inhibitions. Wine breaks down inhibitions and lets you really be free to be who you are, who you are really inside. And so, you know, it sets you free. When the Holy Spirit comes, have you noticed how they're dancing up here? Do you think that's a show? Is that an act? When you people get all excited out here and you're hopping up and down, is that an act? Is that like, well, you're just doing that because everybody's doing it? Huh? No. No, it breaks down inhibitions. I mean, I do things after the Holy Spirit came on me I, I would never have done before. <laughs> and some of them are, are bold. My biggest fear was public speaking. And here I am. How did that happen? <laughs> well, he broke down some inhibitions. Hallelujah. And we could, whew, I gotta stop doing that. <laughs> that basically means like, Sheila, let's wait for a minute and I'm pause and have to think about what my next point is. <laughs> uh, fourth, he removes filters. Wine removes a filter. So you now say things, you blurt things out that you probably wouldn't say otherwise. It, 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 does, it removes the filter of your brain. You know, and we all have filters. We all have filters in life. They're, they are considered to be obstacles to the spirit. We have things like, oh, I don't know, what will people think? That's, a, that's an obstacle. That is a stumbling stone. It'll keep you from accomplishing what God wants to do. Because Jesus is not in charge if what people think is in charge then he's not the head of the church if the church is worried about what people will think. What people will think is, in, is the head of the church. No, it's, it's, uh, it breaks down the barriers, the things that keep the Holy Spirit, it removes filters from your life, intellectualism, doubt, prejudices, those faulty lenses that you look through. It removes those. It takes the cataracts off your eyes. It removes the things that would otherwise filter out the glory of God. And fifth... Uh, the number of grace, it helps, it helps to digest the bread. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? The communion is the bread and the wine. And so Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Well, because it helps to digest the bread. You know, you can read the Bible and it can be dry bread. But you drink it along with the Holy Spirit. You take a drink of the Holy Spirit along with the, with the bread. And what happens is it comes alive. The Bible becomes alive. It's like God is speaking to you through the Bible. Wow, he speaks to you through the word. It's like you're reading that and it's like, wow, that, applies, that answers the question I just had. How does he do that? Well, it's the Holy Spirit wine that makes the Bible alive. It helps your digestion. It helps you take it in and make it a part of you. So the bread doesn't just pass through without ever doing anything for you. It takes the bread and makes it something that can be added to who you are and gives you strength because the wine of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, my Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into all truth. Hallelujah. He will take what is mine and he will give it to you. He will help you digest what is mine and it'll become part of you and be strength and be muscles. Hallelujah. There we go again. I give up. I'm just going to say hallelujah anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so
So here's the point. New Testament holiness is different than Old Testament holiness. Most people are trying to be Old Testament holy. God wants you to be New Testament holy. New Testament holy is based on relationship and the presence of God in your life. He makes you holy. He makes you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Outward holiness doesn't do anything for the inside. You become a whitewashed sepulcher full of dead men's bones. Hallelujah. But the Holy Spirit knows how to come into our life and takes those dead bones and makes them alive. Hallelujah. <laughs> he puts some flesh on them and they become an army of God. Whew. New Testament holiness is so much better. Boy, I mean, I can remember when, when you know, women had to wear hats and men couldn't. That wasn't that long ago. It was in my generation. It's like, wow. I would never have dreamt of coming to church dressed in this sloppy outfit. <laughs> I used to have a reputation that I'd go to bed in a suit and tie. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> There's freedom in Holy Spirit. There's freedom in New Testament. There's freedom in New Testament righteousness. And it doesn't make you less righteous. It makes you more righteous. Because the outward, I've noticed this. People who are really strong in the outward things that are really strong on this rule or that rule or this rule or that rule, they usually fumble the ball on that rule. Because God is opposed to the self-righteous pride. Ah, well, that's a, that was a diversion from my message. But anyway... <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> All right. The second thing is the difference between Old and New Testament. There's, there is New Testament obedience as opposed to Old Testament obedience. It has to do with the wine, too, because uh, after Jesus came, or his mother came to Jesus and said, Hi, what can we can do? They've run out of wine. And, uh, and she said, what's that, he said, what's that got to do with me? And actually, it says woman, but it, we, you know, for us, it sounds like that's a, a really negative term. But actually, then, it was an endearing term. So uh, that we should think of it. What's that got to do with mommy? What's that got to do with me, mommy? It's not our problem. It's not my time. What Jesus was actually saying was, uh, he wasn't influenced by even his mother. He was only influenced by his father. Everything he did was what he saw the father doing, what he heard the father saying. That's what he did. He was not influenced by his mother. He was not influenced by his brothers. He was not influenced by his disciples. He was not influenced by his favorite disciple, Peter. When Peter tried to suggest something that was against the will of God, get behind me, Satan, because you only mind the things of man. God, he was not influenced by anything other than his father. He was very, very strict about that. His obedience was to what his father said, what his father was doing. That's New Testament obedience. In the Old Testament, uh, they had laws. I think there's something like 613 laws in the Talmud. It's like a Encyclopedia Britannica. Some of you may remember what those look like. Uh, the younger generation, they're all on your iPad, but anyway. Uh, but they were like a 23-volume tome. And the Talmud was something like that. And so to, to really know what the law was, you had to spend your life studying it. And so, uh, and then you had to work really hard to obey every single rule. Like you could not spit on the sidewalk because you could spit on the grass, but you couldn't spit on the sidewalk. Because if you spit on the grass, you're watering the grass. And that was work. Whereas if you spit on the sidewalk, nothing happens, so it's not work. So, you know, they had it all defined down in very religious, very great detail. And, and so we shake our heads and say, wow, how can that be? Okay, but in church, it's the same. Yeah. There are all kinds of social rules and morals, things that we are supposed to do. Do this, do that, don't do that. Can't come to church like that. Can't go to church like this. Can't do that. Can't do this. Can't do that. All these rules and regulations, Old Testament. New Testament is this. It's not about the rules, it's about the ruler. You don't have the rules in your heart, you've got the ruler in your heart. And he's got dynamic rules. He says, go here, do that. Oh, wait a minute, let me just confer that with these tablets of stone to see whether or not those are actually in the rule book. No, 
you obey what he says. That's the new rule. Those are new, that is New Testament obedience. The Holy Spirit will lead you. Those who are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. So we're being led by the Spirit. It's a dynamic rule. New Testament obedience is different than Old Testament obedience. In fact, it is even stricter than Old Testament obedience because it is based on love. You do something out of love. You do something because you're in love with Jesus. You do something because you're, you're freely in love with Jesus. You're not doing it because you're being imposed upon from the outside to follow these rules. You're being constrained by the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So it is being done out of love. You willingly do because you believe and have faith in him that when he says do this, he has your best interest at heart or he's got some other good thing in heart because he always goes about doing good and that's what he wants you to do too. New Testament obedience is exciting. Wow. Have you ever obeyed the Holy Spirit to do something and found out that he did something miraculous through that little act that you did? So try to picture yourself with those uh, servants that were told, now go fill up these water jugs. You know what he didn't tell the servants was, go put wine in these water jugs. They said, we can't do that. What could they do? Well, they could fill them with water. Go fill them with water. Okay, so they could do that. God will not tell you, the Holy Spirit will not tell you to do something you can't do. He will tell you to do something you can do. Go talk to that person. I mean, when Peter comes along the gate beautiful, uh, he's, he's, uh, God told him, tell that man lying there on that pallet, stand up and walk. Get off your pallet and walk. Tell that man that. Now, could Peter and John do that? Yes. Of course they could. The job of healing them was not Peter and John's. All they had to do was say the word. And they did. They said the word representing the word of Jesus. And when they saw what Jesus was going to do, they said, take up your bed and walk. Take up your pallet and walk. And they grabbed the guy and said, get up and walk. And the guy gets up. And I like what happens next. He doesn't just, whoo, thank you. No, he's leaping and jumping and praising the Lord. Amen. <laughs> creates quite a stir. You know, whenever Jesus crashes your party or comes into your party, he creates a stir. So here they are dancing around and the people come around and say, hey, who did this? Oh, look at all those guys over there. And they all come over to Peter and John like, who are you? What strange people are you? (laughs) What strange people are you that you can do this? And they say, why are you looking at us like we're some strange people? But know this, Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified has performed this because God has given him a name above every name and he sits at the right hand of majesty and he can now do these things through people who are ordinary. Hallelujah. New Testament obedience. I certainly hope that's true. (laughs) It takes faith, you know. It takes faith. Uh, I'm not sure when that water turned into wine for the servants. It could have been somebody suggested it happened by the, by the, they probably filled the glasses. It still looked like water to them. And probably by the time they got over to the sommelier, they had to take some steps of faith. Do whatever he commands you to do, you do it. And they did. And miracles happen as a result. You know, the, the church of Christ is supposed to be a supernatural entity. We're supposed to be a body of strange people. We're supposed to be a body who is connected with God. We're supposed to be supernatural. We are not, uh, we're not kinsmen. We're not the Rotary Club. We're not people who just go about doing good in human terms. There's a difference between good works and God works. God takes our good works and makes them God works. He takes our little water and makes it something quite remarkable and supernatural. So when you do your little thing, you give a glass of cold water in the name of Jesus. Well, it's just a glass of cold water. Thank you very much for that cold water. What if it turns into wine? What if that guy who was there just said, Lord, if you're really there, I need a glass of cold water. And so you give him a glass of cold water. It's more than that glass. It's an affirmation that God is listening to the heart of that man. Oh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. 
The spirit is willing, but how many people have used that as an excuse? Oh, the flesh is weak. That's why, you know, nothing much will happen because the flesh is weak. So the Bible says that uh, the law was powerless, not because the law was bad, but because of the weakness of the flesh. That's why the Old Testament doesn't work. No point trying to be good. Try to be godly instead of goodly. <laughs> hallelujah. Well, I'm thinking what else to say. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah. Glory to God. We're to be different. Different. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the Holy Spirit is the antidote to that problem. Uh, in Christ, I can do all things. In myself, I can do nothing. You can do nothing without me, Jesus said. Paul also said, there's no good thing that dwells in me, but in, and, and, and I am weak. But when I'm weak, I actually find out I'm really strong. And because in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. He has put this treasure in earthen vessels so the glory may go to him and not to the earthen vessel. The vessel is just a, an object. We never will become Jesus. We can be Jesus-like, but we'll never be Jesus. We're not Jesus. He has his own body, by the way, in heaven. Amen? But we're the body of Christ here on earth. So there's some mysterious part about that where he can have his own body up in heaven, but he was still the body here. And don't ask me to explain that. I don't know. I don't know how that works, but it does. That's the way it is. So we'll never be Jesus. But, you know, we can be the donkey that Jesus rides in into the triumphal entry. Anyway, think about that one. Last one is New Testament believing. What time is it? I believe I'm speaking too long. Uh, New Testament believing. I'll be quick. So John chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, miracles, wonder works, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. By it, he displayed his greatness and his power openly. And his disciples believed in him, adhered to, trusted in, and relied on him. Amplified version. His disciples believed in him. Uh, so uh, up until then, they were already his disciples, which means they'd already abandoned their nets, given up everything to follow this guy, this strange man. That they couldn't quite figure out, but maybe this is the Messiah who's going to lead us out of oppression from Rome and into glory again. We don't know who he is, but we think he's something special. So we're going to follow him. So they're already following him, but they're following him probably out of, in their mind at least, human reasons. They're thinking maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this guy, well, let's get in on the first floor. Let's get in on the, on the act right at the beginning. We've left everything to follow you. Uh, uh, what about us? It's an Old Testament model of believing. What, they, what ended up after the New Testament model was that they actually saw his glory and his power and his nature. There's a reference here, it goes back to Deuteronomy uh, 5, where God showed his glory to the people of Israel. And he did that by coming down on a mountain and shaking the living daylights out of the mountain, stirring up all the people and making them really nervous uh, because of the cloud and the thunder and the lightning and the power and the gravity of God's presence was so big on that mountain. It shook the mountain and shook the people so much so they said, Moses, you go up, we'll stay right here. You go up and whatever you say, we will do it. Lies didn't happen. But Moses went up into the mountain. And Hebrew says that we haven't come to a mountain that can be shaken, but we've come to Mount Zion. So it's a different place. Uh, then it also has a reference to Psalm 72, where it says, the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. How will that happen? How will the glory of God fill the earth? Sometimes we think, well, God's going to display himself in the heavens. He's going to come down on a mountain again and shake it up. Get everybody nervous. No. Uh, I think this picture here is talking about New Testament believing, which is to believe that the Holy Spirit in you can turn the world upside down. Because that's, right. that's, right. that's, that's how God plans to do it. I, think, I don't think the church is not leaving the earth in a whimper. It's going to go out with a blast. Yes. If it goes out at all, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not clear on my eschatology here. <laughs> I think we're going to go out, but who knows? 
but we're going to have a blast in the meantime. Amen? Yeah, so if we look at those different references, what it's displaying is how do you believe in Jesus? What do you believe he's here to do? What do you believe you are here to do? It's a challenge. The New Testament challenge is to recognize why you are here, why we are here, and what we're supposed to do about the fact that the Holy Spirit of Jesus now lives in us. Remember I said in the beginning, the devil's trick is to obfuscate, to make it cloudy, to make it uncertain, and to hide the fact from your eyes, the reality of the fact that Jesus is in you. If you really get a grip of that, and listen, when you get encountered with the Holy Spirit and you get knocked off your feet or something dramatic happens, it's like, whoa, what was that? That is explaining, that is showing you how to believe in Jesus in the New Testament way. How to come and see that there are no longer any barriers. You're here for a purpose. God has called you for a reason. And that, uh, that you, are, you are present to be the body of Christ. What does your, your body expresses who you are and what you are. So if you're happy, there's a smile on your face. That's how I know that you're happy. Otherwise, if you have a poker face, how am I supposed to know? Or how do I know if my wife is happy in Peterborough? She's here in spirit with me, but she's in Peterborough. How do I know if she's smiling right now? By faith, I know she's smiling. But anyway, uh, but so we are the expression of God. And so we're the expression of Jesus here on earth. So we have a purpose to fulfill, and the purpose happens when we expect and live in the presence of God. So... This is the end of my message to you. And I want to encourage you. I want to, you to explore and experiment with the presence of God. When you come, you're coming to church. You're coming to Mount Zion. You're coming to the holy place where God is present. Don't come here just because there's a free lunch. Uh, that's good. We're not, we're not against free lunches. Those are all good. Uh, but don't come just for that. You're coming here for communion. You're coming here for bread and wine. You're coming here to be impacted by the presence of God to such a degree it'll transform your life and make it worthwhile. It'll give you something of a legacy that goes on to eternity. It's the presence of God. And listen, he's not far from you. He's not far from you. He's even in your heart and upon your lips. He's not far from you. You don't have to be a spiritual athlete. You just have to open your heart. Open the door. Open the door. And if like Carl, nail it open. Keep it open. Keep open. Keep open. Every day, keep open. Every day, commune with him. Speak to him like a friend. You're going to make, it's going to make a world of difference. Amen. God bless you. Father, we just pray that you take these words, make them seeds that sprout in our hearts and bring forth life in the nature and in the image of Christ Jesus. Lord, we know with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Lord, let us live in the realm of the all things possible so that we may live in the wonder and the wow of who you are. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I will joy in the Lord of my salvation. Lord, we bless you. We bless you from Zion. Amen.